Welcome back to the Present History Podcast. This episode contains potential spoilers for all the James Bond films and books. So if by some miraculous turn of events you've managed to avoid them all for the last 60 years, (laughs) go and watch them and then come back. If not, thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Also, a quick little trigger warning. We will be discussing 9-11 and its aftermath. center in New York. That happened within the last few moments. No details at this stage as to what sort of plane it is. It could well be a large plane. We are hearing reports of a 737 not yet confirmed um, yet, although it is a jet. On September the 11th, 2001, American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175 were hijacked and flown into the World Trade Center towers in New York. Within the hour, American Airlines Flight 77 was hijacked and crashed into the Pentagon. Minutes later, calls came in from United Airlines Flight 93, reporting that they too had been hijacked and were headed for Washington. On this plane, the passengers managed to overcome the hijackers and crashed into a field in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. The largest terrorist attack in American history shook the nation to the core, and the world would never be the same. Over here in Britain, the events of September 11th were met with shock. Sky News, BBC and others scrambled to make sense of what was going on. Included among the almost 3,000 casualties were 67 British nationals, making 9-11 the largest loss of British life in any terrorist attack in history. No one had seen an attack on this scale before. 9-11 was unprecedented in scale, intricacy and consequence. It heralded in a huge shift in British security restrictions and policy. Counterterrorism became a major priority. Emergency responses were reinvented and renewed to focus on this new threat. Everything began to shift. Politics in America and Britain had to address this threat and the consequences of this attack. Even books and films shifted in the wake of 9-11. This was no different in the Bond franchise. Die Another Day was the first Bond film after 9-11. Such was the cultural impact that 9-11 had that many fictional characters rushed to account for it. And some, like Superman, had to explain why they could not have stopped it. Marvel had Spider-Man and Cyclops help the emergency services clean up 
after 9-11 in Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2 that was released in 2001. And DC Comics published a collection of comic stories entitled 9-11, the world's finest comic book writers and artists tell stories to remember, which came out in 2002, in which Superman looks up at a mural of emergency services in awe and respect. James Bond had to deal with this too. The way the screenwriters rationalised Bond's inaction and his absence from the events of 9-11 was to have him being held captive for over a year before his escape in 2002. He couldn't have helped prevent 9-11, he was captured by the North Koreans. 9-11 is also alluded to in the film, as M tells Bond that since he was taken captive, the world has changed. This was to be Brosnan's final outing as Bond. It served as a nostalgic, if incongruent with modern trends, retreading of some of Roger Moore's Bond ideas. It was over-CGI'd, laughable at points, and ends up ranking among the worst Bond films ever made. And yet, it was exactly what it needed to be. In the wake of the awful destruction and tragedy of 9-11, moviegoers needed a return to the camp, over-the-top friendliness of a Bond film. While not being a particularly good film, it gave the audience a reprieve from the dark reality of the new millennia and terror-stricken world. It's one of the few Bond films that doesn't directly address a national security threat of the time. And it didn't need to. It would have been insensitive, even dangerous, to have a Bond film in which he fought terrorists and Islamist conspiracies against the West, releasing less than a year after 9-11. This would be the role of Daniel Craig's Bond. Debuting in 2006, Craig presented a gritty, emotional, hardline, violent, realistic Bond. Casino Royale, despite being Fleming's first novel, was to be Bond's 21st film. It served as a kind of prologue, taking the audience back to when Bond first obtained his license to kill, and followed his early days as a double O agent. Judy Dench returned as M in an interesting and inspired move. It gave the Craig saga a kind of gravitas and legacy that it needed, with the outcry of Craig being the first blonde Bond beginning to grow. In the film adaptation of Casino Royale, the first scene is not the suave casino setting discussed in the previous episode. Instead, it is a down-to-earth, realistic, gritty hunt for a bomb maker through the dust-swept streets and perilous building sites of Madagascar. From this moment on, the audience realised that Craig's Bond was to be unlike any Bond they had seen before. While he did carry some elements of the previous incarnations, as identified by the Times, Sean Connery's athleticism and cocksure swagger, with Timothy Dalton's thrilling undercurrent of stone-cold cruelty, Craig's Bond was also innovative. For the first time, he was made to contemplate the reality of his job, the psychological effects, the soul-killing nature of being an assassin, the physical ramifications of 
always escaping from within an inch of his life and the consequences of his flippant affairs with women and the potential of love. As a response to the mocking parodies of Austin Powers and Johnny English, the Craig films truly bring Bond into the modern world, doing away with the cheesy double entendres of the previous decades and bringing in a Bond that might, within reason, actually exist in this world. It was also a shift in the film making for Bond. For the first time, the franchise went from episodic to serialized storytelling. There was now a story arc told over Craig's five films. Never before had a story continued over numerous films. Bond had always reset between films, appearing back to his best after every mission. With Craig, Bond had to deal with the physical pain and injury of his previous endeavours. For the first time, Bond had scars. His antagonists were also emphatically modern. Gone were the overbearing, looming world powers of the Soviet Union or Communist China. Now the villains were terror financiers in Casino Royale, environmental terrorists in Quantum of Solace, cyber terrorists and the threat of information leakage that just screams of Edward Snowden, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in Skyfall, a global surveillance system and intelligence sharing initiative secretly controlled by Spectre at a time where the outcry over public surveillance in America and Britain was coming to a fore in Spectre, and finally a biological weapon set to destroy humanity in the years of COVID-19 and global lockdowns in No Time to Die. James Bond has always been present. His antagonists always reminiscent of whatever threat Britain or indeed America had been facing at the time. And yet, we now return to the words that opened the previous episode. James Bond is dead. Where does he go from here? One of the overarching themes of the Craig films, an idea started in the Brosnan films, is Bond's relevance in the modern world. Do we need the sharp end of British intelligence anymore? Is he a relic of the imperial age, doomed to always be a symbol of Britishness, always haunted by his outdated and imperialistic past? Does the world still work in a way that necessitates the existence of people like Bond? Can those elements of his character, his uber-masculinity, womanizing, misogyny, overdrinking, exist in a world that has become so culturally opposed to them? Does Bond have a future? If the history of James Bond has taught us anything, it must be that he will always find a way to survive. Whether it is escaping the lasers and sharks of his classical villains, or traversing a world where his methods might not be so useful, Bond always finds a way through. That's what we love about him. And in the words of Alan Judd again, of course, we do not believe in James Bond, but there's some part of us that wants to believe in him just as his creator did. 
We want to keep alive the possibility of him. James Bond has been a staple of British literary and cinematic culture for the past 59 years. He has undergone a slow, steady evolution into the modern world, carrying with him the luggage of his Cold War origins and a need to remain relevant. He has always been a kind of mouthpiece for the political and cultural issues faced by Britain and America throughout his emphatically consistent cinematic career. Beginning as a figurehead of resurgent British power in the years of economic downturn following the Second World War, becoming the icon of Britain's Cold War. Through the American War on Drugs, the fears of seemingly omnipotent media moguls and internal threats, Bond has been brought firmly into the modern world, standing against terrorism and biological and cyber warfare. He is, and always has been, a product of the 60s, constantly adapting to whatever threat his real-world, modernizing nation needed him to face. We'll finish with one of my favorite quotes from any Bond film. In No Time to Die, Bond is racing up a flight of steps, stopped by a locked door. On it is a sign written in Russian. Into his comms, Bond quips something to the extent of, What does it say, Q? My Russian is a bit rusty. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast and the second in our James Bond duology, You Only Live Forever. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms to keep up to date with all we do and check back next time for a brand new episode of the Present History Podcast.